Good morning, Redeemer Church. My name is Dave Furman. I serve as one of the elders here, along with Pastor Daniel, who just led us in our prayer of petition. If you haven't already turned there, turn to the Gospel of John. You'll also find the text in the bulletin that you may have found on your seat. You will also have the text up on the screens as we go through it. It's the fourth book of the New Testament. It's the fourth gospel that talks about the life and times of Jesus Christ on earth. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then you'll find uh, John. It's good to be back in John's gospel after some time. We took a break during the Christmas time when I preached the series, and then Pastor Morgs preached through Zechariah. We had a guest preacher or two, but now after some time, we are back in John's gospel, and we find ourselves right in the middle of this gospel account, but it's been a while, so maybe just a bit of a refresher, or maybe you're new to us, and we're glad that you're here. If this is your first time, or you've just found us in this past week's Uh, We're just glad to get to know you and glad to be together. But just so we remember what is happening in this gospel, do you remember, you don't have to answer out loud, but just think to yourself, do you remember the purpose of John's gospel? Do you remember why he wrote this gospel? Obviously inspired by God and the Holy Spirit, but there was a specific purpose in mind. We'll flip over, if you have a Bible, to John chapter 20 to make sure we're on the same page. Now, pun partially intended there. Let's go back to what I said in the very first John sermon up in Rasulkaima. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is saying that there are many other things that Jesus did. We only have a a sampling of them right here. But John specifically chose these signs, these miracles. Why? And there's only seven of them. There's seven signs. Why did he choose these signs, these miracles? Well, he chose them so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John's goal is to persuade. It's evangelistic in that sense. He chose, through God's inspiration, to include signs and stories that would specifically and especially reveal Jesus as God in the flesh. And so his focus is laser sharp. One main focus. There's much more he could have said. I love the last verse of this entire gospel. You can flip over or look on the screens. The very last verse, chapter 21, verse 25. I love this. He says, now there are also many other things Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I love that. Can you imagine? Jesus did so many other things, so many other things during his life on earth, so many that if they were written down, you couldn't even fit all of those books in the world's biggest library. And not just that, forget the library. John says the whole world couldn't hold them. John is saying that Jesus did so much 
that even if the whole world was one big library, it cannot contain all that Jesus did. It wouldn't be big enough. But the goal of this book, the goal in John sharing these words, is that we would believe. That's the heart. Now, why is it so important that we believe in Jesus? Why is John persuading us to believe? It's because John says in chapter 20, so that you and I may have life. John wrote this book because our lives depend on it. It's life or death. Those are our only two choices. And John tells us that it's only through belief in Jesus that we can live. There are not many gods. There are not many ways to be saved by God. Salvation belongs to the Lord and only comes by believing in Jesus. And so, friends, we pick back up the Gospel of John, and I want us to feel, I want us to, to feel the urgency of the Gospel writer here, that there are just two ways to live, life or death. Which will you choose? That's the point of the book. That's what John is all about. Seven signs that are meant to lead us to belief. The changing of the water to the wine. The healing of the official son. We see a paralytic heal. We see the feeding of the 5,000. We see a man who's born blind. We see all these signs that are leading to the seventh and final sign. They're all kind of leading up towards this, this most surprising sign. This last miracle regarding a man named Lazarus. And it will be Jesus' greatest sign before his death. Indeed, it points to his death and resurrection. Now, this text is one of the more surprising signs. Now, I don't know about you, but I like surprises. In fact, I love surprises. My favorite movies are the mystery movies, the ones with the big plot twist in the end. Surprises has to be my love language. Surprise parties, uh, surprise news, surprise gifts, a surprise visitor. Well, the good ones, at least. I enjoy surprises. But whether you do or you don't, you'll agree, this sign is the most surprising of them all. And it's a long chapter, and so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the first three surprises in this passage today, and then we'll take the last three surprises next Sunday, okay? So this is part one. You have to come back next week for part two, okay? Do we have a deal? All right, part one today, part two next week. And here's the the outline for both of the two weeks is this, six surprises in the seventh sign. Six surprises in the seventh sign. Three this week, three next week. The first surprise, so if you're taking notes on the three surprises today, number one is that there's a surprising delay. A surprising delay. Look at verses one through six. Now a certain man was ill Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, 
This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Let's stop there just for a few moments. What's going on here? Let's, let's set the scene. There's a sick man named Lazarus of Bethany. He has two sisters, Mary and Martha. Mary is the one who anointed Jesus with ointment. John will actually narrate that scene for us in the next chapter. Seems like John assumes the readers would have already heard about such an extravagant account of devotion. And in verse 3, it's clear that these are dear friends of Jesus. The sisters appeal to him for healing on the basis of his love for Lazarus. Verse 4, Jesus responds and says, it's okay. It won't lead to death, but to the glory of God for his glory. In a sense, though, this illness does lead to death, right? Lazarus is going to die, but while it may lead to death, it doesn't end in death. Jesus is simply saying death won't be the end of the story. Verse 5, John makes it a point to say that he loves this family. In fact, it's because of this love that we get the next verse. Now, did verse 6 seem strange to you when I read it? Look at it again. Or maybe when you studied it in your community groups this past week and you got to verse 6, did verse 6 seem strange to you? It should have. It's strange and it's surprising. Jesus loves Lazarus. Jesus loves Mary. Jesus loves Martha. These were his dear friends, people he loved, people he had affection for. That's why it's a complete surprise that we see that itty-bitty word there in the beginning of verse 6. Do you see that there? So. Or you could even say, therefore. Jesus loved this family. He loves this family. So, therefore, listen again to verse 6. So, when he, Jesus, heard that Lazarus was ill... So think about this. When he heard Lazarus was sick with a fatal illness, it was under those circumstances of getting a report about his friend. It was under those circumstances that he stayed two days longer in the place that he was. Do you see that? It is an utter surprise when you think about who Jesus is. Jesus loved them. What do you expect out of love? And love runs, doesn't it? You get that call regarding a close family member in the hospital, and you run. Love runs. You don't take another phone call. You don't stroll for a leisurely dinner. You don't stay another couple of days. So, therefore, Jesus stayed two days longer. He's about a two days journey away at this point. Rushing home might not have saved Lazarus' life, but there's more to it than that. Jesus is showing his love and his glory by waiting. God takes the long view. He understands that sometimes delay is best for both us and his glory. 
We don't always get explanations for why God does what he does. But as one pastor said, God is less interested in giving us explanations than he is in building our character and bringing himself glory. The same conviction is shared by Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China. Trials afford God a platform for his working in our lives. Without them, I would never know how kind, how powerful, how gracious he is. D.A. Carson puts it this way in his book, Scandalous. In these verses, Jesus receives a desperate plea for help, and he demonstrates his love by delay. God also might be protecting us in those delays. Carson, in that same book, he tells the story of uh, two seminary students, a married couple studying in seminary, the first year that Dr. Carson came to Chicago, there in 1978, and then in 1979, there was a couple who had final exams that they needed to take. Now, at this particular seminary, and I think in most official schools, there is a system on when you take and a schedule on when you take exams. And so this school had a tight schedule, and you could only get an exemption if you were really, really sick or maybe a family member had passed away. That's it. Well, this couple, they had a church that they were going to look for a job at across the country, and so they booked the tickets before they ever told the school or tried to get an exemption from the school. They went to the dean of students, and they said, hey, we got these tickets, and we're going to apply for this job. We can't take our final exams when they're scheduled. The school said, no way. You knew the rules when you signed up for the semester. You knew the exam schedule. You knew that before you booked the tickets. And they pleaded with the dean saying, but you, this is about ministry. This is about our ministry. This is about our future. And they stood their ground and said, no, you need to stay and take the exams according to the schedule. So they took the exams, and yet even afterwards... They were still bickering, talking bad about the seminary, slandering the names of the administrators. When they walked into the cafe right after taking the exams, there was a radio broadcast that came on. It was a news flash. At the same time they walked in, the news said that a plane had crashed at Chicago's O'Hare Airport and killed everyone on board. That was the tragic Chicago crash of 79, the very flight this couple was booked to fly on. It was and still is the deadliest aviation accident in U.S. history. Now, Carson wasn't trying to say that God saves all Christians from plane crashes or other tragedies. But on the other hand, he is saying that God is in charge over all of that. God is sovereign. God is wise. His delays are not mistakes. Let me just say that one more time. His delays are not mistakes. Now church, I love you, but you may be experiencing a delay right now. 
You may be experiencing some divine delay, but remember the Bible, okay? Remember Joseph being sold into slavery. Remember Joshua at the Battle of Jericho. Remember Job. He lost everything. Children. Everything he owned, even his wife, seemed against him. Paul had a thorn in his flesh, had affliction after affliction, danger after danger. But what happened? Well, in the end, Joseph saved Israel during the famine. Joshua led the people into the promised land. Job received more than he had before, and Paul planted churches all across Asia Minor. Oh, friend, what are your delays? What are you waiting on? Are you waiting on a health diagnosis and you wonder if God understands? When you do ministry for God and the whole thing fails, you see no fruit, at least none that you can see with your own eyes. Maybe this delay is God's love towards you. When we're let down by our friends or by our church members, when we feel betrayed by a family member, when we're lonely and waiting, waiting on justice, waiting on a visa, waiting on a salary, waiting on a child, waiting for the end of this season of suffering to end. Christian friend, there will be times of waiting. There will be times of suffering. Here in our passage, we see a close friend of Jesus suffering, but it's not without purpose. Hymn writer William Cooper reminds us that God moves in a mysterious way, that behind a frowning providence always, always hides a smiling face. All his delays are for our good and for his glory. He works all his delays together for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Jesus is never late. Jesus is never, ever late. He's always right on time. He created time. He created time. He holds the whole world and its time in his hands, and he is never late for his appointments, even if his delays surprise us. Well, friend, we can be confident in that. Well, the first surprise we see today is a surprising delay. Well, number two, a second surprise in the text, a surprising trip. We'll see that in verses 7 through 16. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the light, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. 
Well, first, a surprising delay. Now we see a surprising trip. Verse 7, after staying for a couple of days, he says to his disciples, okay, guys, let's get together and let's go down to Judea again. I don't know if the disciples enjoyed road trips with Jesus, but they weren't very excited about this one. They had just been down there and the people tried to stone Jesus. We see this at the Feast of Dedication in John chapter 10. They were trying to kill him. So on the one hand, we expect Jesus to run. Love runs. We expect him to go. But on the other hand, it's a surprise there to the disciples because he was going back into enemy territory. He was going back just, just days after they tried to stone him and to take his life. The disciples, they can't imagine Jesus' rationale for going back. And Jesus responds to their surprise in verses 9 and 10. Jesus is saying, I don't need to worry about death because I'm walking in the light of God's will. I'm walking in the light of God's will. Yes, the persecution is greater. I got it. I understand. And I'm not scared. And this is an era before Apple Watches, before Rolex and Casio. And so the Romans and the Jews, they divided daylight and the evening from 12 hours for day and, and about 12 hours for night. They divided time into those two sections, sometimes varying based on the time of the year. When it was light, they would do their work. They would go about their business. When it was dark, they would wind things down and they would go to sleep. Once the darkness came, it was time to stop. So at one level, this passage, these verses right here are talking about the sun, the S-U-N, sun. But when we look deeper, there's an application to the S-O-N, son of God. Jesus is saying in these verses that he is safe as long as he performs the will of God. There is still work for the S-O-N, son of God, to do. Jesus is saying, if I'm going to do the will of God, if I'm doing his very will, I'm walking in the light. Remember, I am the light of the world, Jesus says. You can't stumble when you're doing God's will. But not doing God's will was like walking in the dark. It's a little more difficult for us to understand. But back in those days, no electrical lights, no electricity at all. Dark was dark. There were some dark days that people would have understood the point John is making. And so to the human eye, this is a surprising trip into persecution, especially in light of verse 11. This must have really confused the disciples. Look at it. Lazarus is just asleep. I'm going to wake the guy up. What are the, what are the disciples thinking at this point? It's okay, Jesus. If he's just sleeping, I'm sure he's got some kind of alarm to wake him up. He's a responsible adult. No need for us to go back into enemy territory, into persecution, to wake a guy up from a nap. Well, eventually he tells them, verse 13 and 14, Guys, guys, I'm trying to tell you Lazarus is dead. Okay, that clears things up a bit. But then there's verse 15. And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. That's a surprising verse and a whole text of surprises. 
For your sake, I'm glad I wasn't anywhere near Lazarus. Now, I think what Jesus is saying here is that if he was present, that he just, his love for Lazarus couldn't have hold, held him back from healing Lazarus right then. And so he gets there after Lazarus has died. And then there's the purpose of the book again. So that you may believe. Remember, that's the purpose of all seven signs, both for the people in their day, for those disciples, for everybody else around, and for us. That these signs might bring us to belief. Verse 16, Thomas he sees Jesus. He was determined to return to Judea despite the danger. And he calls the rest of the, the disciples and says, guys, let's go. Let's do this. The, the rest of the disciples seem to be telling Jesus, hey, let's stay. No reason to wake him up. On one level, Thomas missed the point. He didn't understand. It wasn't a mission at that point for all of them to die. But on another level, that's exactly what would happen soon to Jesus. He would take his last trip to Judea. He would die there. Eventually, the disciples would die for their faith or be exiled. Taking Thomas's words at face value, we're right. Jesus, we're going to follow you even if it's to the death. Well, either way, this is a surprising trip. Well, then we get a third surprise. Number three, a surprising claim. Verses 17 through 27. In these verses, a surprising claim. Let me read them. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. We'll stop there in our reading today. Jesus gets to Bethany. Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days, verse 17. That's significant. But you'll have to come back next week for part two. I'll tell you more about that. This family was likely pretty wealthy. How do we know this? Well, the ointment that Mary used, scholars think, was equivalent to perhaps a year of normal salary. And we'll see that in chapter 12 of John's gospel. And there were many Jews who had come down, verse 19. Many of these were likely paid mourners. Many of our cultures practice silence or maybe a, a very somber feel at a funeral 
at a memorial, there's usually quiet and and a reverence. But in Jewish culture and in many cultures in the first century, they expressed grief with loud cries and wails, often communally. Not only did you mourn yourself, your family, your friends would mourn, and often you'd actually hire professional mourners to keep the noise, to keep the tears, to keep the crying coming all day long. It was customary for even the poorest family to get some flute players, to get a professional wailing person to just cry. You were paid to cry. That was their job. The Lazarus' family wasn't a poor one, it seems. There was probably a lot of noise. Jesus arrives, and it looks like Martha starts rebuking Jesus there in verse 21. Jesus, Jesus, if only you were here. If only you had shown up earlier and not delayed. Well, she quickly backs off in the next verse. I don't think at her heart was rebuke. Even now, God will give to you whatever you ask. And then verse 23, Jesus says, your brother will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha says, Jesus, I know that. I know he's going to rise. Even the Pharisees believed that the body would rise. Now, the Sadducees didn't. But the Pharisees, the law keepers of the day, even believed this. Martha believed this. Of course, Jesus, he's going to rise on the last day. She knew the scriptures. But Jesus says, no, no, Martha. I don't think you quite understand. Yes, there is a resurrection on the last day, but I want you to believe something even bigger. I I am the resurrection and the life. Yes, there is death. Yes, there is resurrection. Resurrection here is talking about the physical body coming back from the dead. God made us with physical bodies. He made Adam and Eve with physical bodies. But after they sinned and sin came in the world, the body would die. And so outside of that garden, Adam and Eve tasted death. Just as we're going to taste death if Jesus doesn't come back first. When Jesus resurrected to heaven, he resurrected with a body. But it's amazing here how Jesus so closely identifies with resurrection and life. Jesus makes a surprising claim, utterly surprising. Not only is there resurrection on the last day, yes, that's true, Martha. Not only is there life on the last day, that's true, Martha. But Jesus says, I am. I mean, listen to this surprising claim. Jesus says, I am the resurrection, and the life. I am, and whoever believes in me, while he or she may suffer physical death, they shall live. Everyone. Verse 26, not some, not a few, not a couple, not those that did good works, not those from this socioeconomic background, not this culture, not man or woman, but everyone. Everyone who believes in Jesus shall one day have everlasting life. Oh, friends, isn't that good news? Isn't that amazing news? Martha. Jesus says, Martha, do you understand it? And you see what Jesus is doing here? He's taking their focus and he's taking our focus off our ever-changing circumstances and he's putting it on himself. That he's the exclusive provider of eternal life. He so closely identifies it to us 
so that we see that apart from him, there is no life. He is life. Jesus' concern is to move Martha and it's to move all of us to a general belief that Jesus is the only provider of life. So she says, yes, Lord. Uh, We don't know exactly what understanding Martha has, but it seems like she has some understanding there of who Christ is and what Christ is going to do as he points her to himself. Now, friends, in our trials, our greatest consolation is not in trusting in our ever-changing, ever-shifting circumstances, but in focusing on Christ himself. It's what the late author and pastor Jack Miller urges us to do in his book, Letters from a Servant Leader. This surprising claim means, number one, salvation is found in Christ. We've mentioned that, and Christ alone. In a few moments, we're going to sing about that, that salvation comes only from Christ, that he is the exclusive giver of salvation. And number two, for those of us who are Christians and follow Jesus, This truth means that we can have confidence in Christ for our daily lives. Isn't that good? He doesn't just save us through his death and resurrection. He gives us a confidence in himself for each and every day. That's because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Because of that, Jack Miller says, we can do away with self-confidence and instead have a Christ-confidence. Let me say that again. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the the life, we can move away from being self-confident to having a Christ-confidence. I've been thinking about those words of Jack Miller all week long, and I've asked, how does this apply to my life? I had a challenging week. Sermon prep was challenging and late. I had a choice to be self-confident or Christ-confident. For me, that meant throughout the week and even this morning to set aside my sermon preparation, which needed work, and first just to read the scriptures and to pray. So even this morning, put my notes aside just to pray and to read. Normally, the first thing I do when I get up is I go right to the sermon. I'm nervous, I'm anxious, and, and I'm excited just to get into the Word and to be prepared. But what God had to even show me through Jesus' words, I am the resurrection and the life. He's shown me once again that he can handle my burdens. And I know he can handle your burdens. I realized in my life this week there are many areas that I need to shift from a self-confidence to a Christ-confidence. And so I ask you, my dear friends, how about you? In what ways do you need to move from self-confidence to Christ-confidence? I don't know what it is. Maybe it's multiple things. Maybe you're anxious about a project at work. Maybe you need to shift from a self-confidence to a Christ-confidence. Maybe it's family division, alone building up. Your exams are on the way. Maybe you're in full-time ministry somewhere. You're trying to get back into that place. Maybe you're a teacher. You have really challenging students or administration. Maybe you're waiting to get that job back, but you haven't gotten it yet. Where in your life do you need to shift 
from self-confidence to Christ-confidence. Oh, friends, think about that this week. Maybe ask each other over lunch that very question. What are the areas in your life do you need to move from self-confidence to Christ-confidence? And if you're here today and you don't yet follow Jesus, you're not a Christian, then your first step is to shift in your heart from a reliance on self to a reliance on God, from a confidence in self to a confidence in Christ. Remember, I started this sermon reminding us that there are only two ways to live, life or death. And life only comes through believing in Jesus. Apart from him, there can be no eternal life. Jesus came to us in the flesh, he was born as a baby, he lived a perfect life, faced temptation but did not sin. And then he died on the cross to save his people from their sins. And what did he do on the third day? Well, he rose from the dead. He proved that everything he did and everything he said and all of the words in Scripture are true. Death couldn't stop him. The tomb couldn't contain him. Those guards outside were no match for him. He is the resurrection and the life. And so, friends, if you don't yet follow Jesus, you have a decision to make. Will you believe in Jesus? Will you follow him? And let me tell you something. Not a real popular belief, but a true one is that if you come to Christ, it will, it will, it'll cost you something. Now, I don't know what. Maybe it costs you something in the workplace. Maybe with your family, your friends. Maybe it'll mean giving up the lifestyle that you live. In fact, friends, if I'm completely honest with you now, it will cost you. I don't know what it is, but becoming a Christian doesn't mean everything in your life is going to be carefree, pain-free, and with ease. In fact, Jesus tells us in other places in the Gospels that it's going to cost us that we are to take up our cross and to follow him. That means to follow him in suffering. It means to follow him in pain. It means to follow him in persecution. My friend Adam had this decision to make recently. On Thursday night, some of us gathered for a baptism of a man who's attended our membership class and is planning on joining. I'm calling him Adam for security reasons, as he's from a nearby country. One of our elders, Jerry, had been bringing Adam to our church services for many months. He's been hearing the gospel from the pulpit, hearing the gospel from many of you. He often joins a Bible study, studying the scriptures in his own language. He was impacted by Pastor Morgs' sermon back many months ago where Jesus is the good shepherd. That stayed with him. And later on in the days following, he had a dream. He had a dream of the good shepherd, of Jesus calling Adam to himself. And what I found out at his baptism is he actually had a second dream calling him to himself. I remember one weekend after he was telling me about the dream and how it matched up with the sermon. He told me, I want to believe in Jesus. 
but I'm afraid. But I'm afraid because of my friends here. I'm afraid because of my family back home. I'm afraid of the persecution. And so he, he waited. He just couldn't do it. And then a few weeks later, Samuel from our staff team preached his first sermon in our in-person gatherings. And oftentimes, not always, but most of the time, when it's their first sermon, I just let them pick whatever text is on their hearts. And so I said, Samuel, you can preach from any text that you want. And so he thought about it, prayed about it. Without knowing what God was doing in Adam's life, he chose Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Now, right after Samuel's preaching that day, I had a little semicircle of, of men from Adam's country up here towards the, the front. Now, I don't know if it was that week or the week before, but another man from the same country was professing belief. I don't know, maybe it was even weeks before, but he came forward to me and wanted to share about his new belief in Jesus. And so we celebrated that as a, as a circle up here. We celebrated new life in Christ. And I led this man just... By, by praying to God on his behalf, just praising God for salvation that seems to have come to this man. And we rejoiced and we, we celebrated. It was so encouraging, so delightful. I basically did a little mini membership chat, mini elder chat. If you're a member, you know what that is. And I just asked him questions and I was so encouraged by his faith. We were all so joyful in that moment, but it didn't stop there. Because as soon as I was done praying, Adam, who was there, a bit behind the group, he stepped through the group and, and raised his hand. And I said, yes, Adam, would you like to say something? And he said some of the most beautiful words I've ever heard and will never forget. He said, yes, the Lord is my shepherd. He will protect me. We were shocked. We wanted to know more. And we did another mini membership chat right after that. And, and this brother seemed like the Lord had saved him. And so we gathered around again and prayed for Adam. And we rejoiced with Adam. There was so much rejoicing here in the Crown Plaza. And I trust that there was so much rejoicing in heaven as well. And so last Thursday night, we gathered to baptize and to pray for our brother, who's now gone back for a while to his home country. Now think about God's kindness here. Think about God's goodness. Think about his sovereignty. A Filipino brother brings him. An Australian brother preaches on Jesus as the good shepherd. God gives him dreams about the good shepherd and then unknown to him the impact it would have. A Nigerian brother chooses Psalm 23 and preaches the Lord is my shepherd and he's been attending a Bible study led by a brother from a different background all here in a church in the middle of the Arabian Peninsula. Friends, this is how God works. This is how God works. He works in surprising ways. And see, Adam knew something after these sermons and after these dreams. He knew the truth of John 11. He knew that he had a decision to make, life or death. And he chose life. He chose spiritual life, everlasting life, eternal life. And yes, there is biological death. Yes, we know that man may take our physical life, but that is not the end of the story. You see, for Christians, yes, we may die, but even the worst 
deaths don't interrupt the continuity for the living even for a second. What I mean is, as followers of Christ, in the very moment we die, we go to his presence. There's not a second in between. There's no delay. There's no delay. As a follower of Christ, the moment, the very second, the very instant we die, we stand face to face with our Savior. And so the trials of today will be gone in a flash. There's not a second in between Death in God's presence, persecution, perversion, problems, or pain. All of it will be gone. Oh, friends, this is good news for our hearts today. But friends, if you don't follow Christ, those are your choices. And by not making a choice, you are making a choice. Because there are only two ways to live. One is trusting in Jesus, the resurrection and the life or saying no to this invitation and living in death. Oh, friends, will you follow Adam's lead? And Christians, would you follow Adam's lead in a Christ confidence as you go about your week? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for this text today. We thank you for your work in and through us as we study these marvelous and even surprising and even stunning verses. Oh Lord, would we shift from a self-confidence to a Christ-confidence even today. Father, I don't know what's going on in the lives of everyone in this room, but I know a lot is going on in our lives. Oh Father, would we be Christ-confident as some of us have family members there in the Ukraine and friends there, would we have a Christ confidence when it comes to our jobs? Would we have a Christ confidence in the midst of conflict? Would we have a Christ confidence in the midst of family pain, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials, in the midst of sickness, in the midst of uncertainty? Father, would we have a Christ confidence today? and tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day after that. Lord, would we, would we not live in our own power and our own strength, but would we live in a confidence that Jesus is the resurrection, that Jesus is the life? Oh, Father, we need your help. Oh, would you help us? Would you help us be confident and courageous like Adam? Father, would our witness be strong? And we, would you be with us as we leave this place? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.